So the passage before us, you'll recall we went through it last week, and we never actually got to the last couple of verses. We won't get to them this week either, just let you know. Uh, We'll have to get to those next week. So what's happening here is that Jesus has now come to the place in his ministry. He has left the Galilean region. He has gone down into the Judean region, and he's interacting with a new group of people. He was rejected, you'll recall, back up in Galilee. Remember, he leaves there basically saying to them, woe unto you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the mighty works that have been done in you have been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes, but you didn't. So he goes down now to Jerusalem and, you know, it's pretty much take two, right? He's down here, the Pharisees and the scribes, which are the experts in the law, they have listened to him, they have invited him to dinner, they have heard him speak and preach in various venues, and we come now to today's passage. This is what it comes to. Jesus speaks and gives them the truth and gives various parables, and now verse 14, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, remember we just got done talking about use the the goods of this world, to serve God, they were listening to all the things that he was saying, and their response is, they scoff at him. They ridicule him. They dismiss him. They mock him. They basically say, we don't care what you have to say. We are no longer going to listen to it. In fact, we are going to openly and aggressively oppose you. Not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but the reason why they did that was because they had an alternate religion. They had an alternate worldview. They thought they represented the law of Moses. Of course, they didn't. But they thought that that gave them a foundation to oppose what Jesus had to say. The little phrase I want us to focus on this morning is the first phrase in verse 15. And he said to them. It is extremely instructive to see what Jesus had to say to them. We live in a day and age in which there are many voices, many religions, many thoughts and ideas floating around out there, and they are opposed to us. The question that we might want to ask is, how exactly do you go about defining religion? Interesting. I, I thought, well, I'll just look that up in the dictionary. Webster's dictionary ought to be able to solve that. Let's see. If religion is, you know, kind of find out. <clears throat> there is no consensus on what defines a religion, which I thought was kind of interesting all on its own. Come to find out when your mother told you in polite society, don't discuss religion and politics. Apparently, you don't even get to discuss what makes a religion a religion because that's debatable too. So I thought, well, okay like everything else, we can go to the word of God and the word of God is going to define for us very clearly what exactly would constitute, in the best sense of the word, religion. Uh, I think the Bible presents to us a clear view of a number of teachings. It talks to us about morality. It talks to us about sin, what it is and how you know whether or not you're sinning. It talks about salvation exactly how to get the salvation of God. It talks about who we are, 
mankind. It talks about how we got here as long as, as well as the universe, how it all got here. And it talks about who God is. Not exhaustive. That's hardly an exhaustive list of the things that the Bible talks about. But that's the big picture. Basically, the question of where did we come from? What are we doing here? Why in the world are we here? And what happens to us when we die? I would put forward that those would make up the views of what is a religion. So when you start addressing those kinds of issues, when you start walking on God's territory, when you start answering the questions that the Bible answers, and you start giving answers that the Bible doesn't give, you are having a religious discussion. So religion is a pretty broad thing. When you start talking to atheists, you would be like, well, by definition, atheism is not a religion. Are you sure? Because the fact of the matter is that if you talk to a, you know, a well thought through atheist, I'm not just talking about an average person who wants to throw up, well, I don't believe in God. I'm talking about someone who's actually an atheist. I mean, they have thought this through. Well, they want to talk to you about morality, and they're perfectly willing to argue with you that you certainly don't need God to be moral. And then we'll proceed to give you a whole pile of arguments. Well, okay, that is a religious discussion. They may say they don't believe in God, but you start talking about morality, God sets what morality is. They want to talk about what's wrong with the world. They may have no answer about how to fix what's wrong with the world, but it's a very biblical discussion to talk about what's wrong with the world. You know what's wrong with the world? We're sinners. That's what's wrong with the world. They want to talk about where the universe came from. Who doesn't, right? They want to talk about, well, what they want to say is that God doesn't exist, which is kind of presumptuous, particularly if you've actually looked at the universe. If you want to get like the Hubble Deep Sky survey, right? You kind of look at all that. Every dot on the thing is a galaxy. It's, okay, all those galaxies, you want to look at me and say that there is no God? That's a pretty bold thing to say. The fact is that Many voices in our society are having religious discussions. And if you're thinking that my definition is a little too broad, it may be that that is because our society looks at us in particular and says, you guys are religious, and here's what religion is. Religion is this quiet, personal view that you have about God, and you can go to church, and you can talk about it in church, and you can say whatever you want in church to each other, but other than that, you just need to shut up. We don't want you in the public square. We don't want you actually voting your convictions. We don't want you talking about the things that you believe. Why? Well, because they want to talk about morality. They want to openly talk about what they think is right and wrong, and what's wrong with the world, and where the world came from. I mean, just watch any, anything out there on evolution, which is just permeates everywhere. If evolution isn't a religion, I don't know what makes for a religion. It talks about the origin of man. It talks about good and evil. I mean, it's just, it just applies to everything you could possibly think about. There are a number of ideas that float around out there. If you go to, say, the psychologists, the psychological world, well, they want to talk to you and they want to have a discussion with you about exactly what is wrong with you. Their answer, on the whole, is some version of, well, you have a chemical imbalance. So we're going to give you chemicals or drugs or something that's going to 
balance your brain out so that you'll stop being abnormal, whatever in the world that is. And that, of course, becomes its own discussion as to exactly what is flawed, because, you know, they used to think that homosexuality was a flaw. They don't anymore, mind you. They all got together and decided to make that not a flaw anymore. They used to think gender dysphoria, you know, the inability to determine whether you're a man or a woman, that, that used to be labeled as a flaw too. So they got together and they decided that that's no longer a mental illness. They decided that homosexuality isn't a mental illness, gender dysphoria isn't a mental illness. You know, I think they should work on cancer. They should all just get together and vote that cancer's not an illness anymore too. I mean, why not? This is a world view. And by the way, it is hostile to Christianity. They want to come after us and tell us that we need to be quiet, that we shouldn't talk into society. We shouldn't talk about sin. We shouldn't talk about the fact that people are basically evil. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be saying those things. And exactly why shouldn't we? And by the way, the world is the creation of God. And there is a God who sits in heaven. And just in case you don't want to talk about it, let me remind you that God is going to bring you to judgment at the end of your life. You might actually want to think about that before you get to the end of your life. What the world wants us to think is that, okay, you guys all believe in the golden rule, all you Christians. So the ultimate golden rule, you know, the ultimate love that you can show your neighbor is for you to show the loving virtue of not sharing your views on God and heaven and hell and all that other stuff. Just be quiet. That is the most loving thing you can do. Is it? Is that really the most loving thing we can do? And that's why when we come to this particular passage this morning, this is why I want to look at this little, little phrase. And he said to them. Because Jesus, at the moment of this passage, is facing a hostile religious view. Jesus has been speaking. He's been speaking for some time. He's been easily three years into his ministry, maybe, maybe three years and multiple months. The, the final trip to Jerusalem and the cross is not far off. And so he's been speaking and teaching, and they have grown increasingly and increasingly more hostile to what he has to say. So how does he respond to that? What exactly does Jesus say when people oppose him? What should we say when people oppose us? When we stand up and say we believe the Bible is true, we believe there is a God who sits in heaven, and we believe that there is a day of judgment to come, and people mock us, laugh us to scorn, ridicule us, what should we do? Should we just quietly go sit in the corner and go, oh, I guess I better not say anything anymore? Is that what we should do? Is that what Jesus did? I want us to take just a moment here and to start going through not just Luke, although there are a number of places in Luke. I want us to go through the Gospels and look at the account of how Jesus interacted with opposition. I have a book written by a guy named uh, Dr. Thomas. He was one of my seminary professors. It's a harmony of the Gospels. 
And so he put it together, and it's in columns. You've got the four Gospels. You've got four columns. And you can go through it chronologically and look at everything that Jesus said so you don't miss anything. I, I'm not going to go through all of them, but over a hundred times Jesus said or Jesus answered them. Over a hundred times Jesus responds to people who oppose him. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had fellow believers come to me and say, well, when you got unjustly attacked, when you were trying to do the work of God and someone slandered you or someone came after you and someone lied about you or lied about the ministry you were doing or lied about whatever you were saying, what you need to do is you need to be like Jesus. You just need to turn the other cheek and, and like Jesus was a silent, like a lamb to the slaughter. So you need to be silent. You just need to be quiet. Don't defend yourself. Okay. Jesus was like a sheep before a shearer and didn't say a word at his trial. Yeah, of course he did. And you know why he did that? Well, because when he was on trial, it was such a sham trial, and they had called so many false witnesses, and they had contradicted themselves and said so many crazy things. that you know, if Jesus had actually said anything at his trial, they'd have had to let him go. So he's not going to do that. It's like, I, I came here to be falsely accused, to be unjustly crucified, and to die as the just for the unjust. So it's not until they absolutely put him under oath and say, you know, are you the Messiah or not? Well, you will see me coming at the right hand of God, which they completely understood was he was claiming to be the Messiah. At that moment, at the trial, Jesus is quiet. He doesn't say anything. He is like a, a lamb before his, his, the slaughter. Other than that, you can just read down through the Gospels, and let me tell you, Jesus was anything but silent. Now, like I said, we don't have time to go through all 100 of these things, 100 passages. It's actually even more than that. But we're going to go through a number of them. And what I want you to observe, and I think it's essential for us as Christians, the pressure is on us as Christians to just be nice and be quiet. Don't go into the public square. Don't say what you think. Everybody else gets to say what they think. They, they get to offer whatever opinion they want. But we're supposed to be quiet. We're not supposed to offer the biblical opinion. Because... Well, we're supposed to be kind and, and nice. And, and if people falsely accuse us, we're just supposed to take it. Because after all, that's what Jesus did. Really? Okay, let's, look a look, let's, let's get a look at what Jesus actually did. Okay? So Jesus begins his ministry. And we can, we'll go through all four Gospels here. We'll look at various Gospels. In Mark chapter 4, verse 17... Jesus stands up and says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, you might not think that that's a particularly controversial message, but the fact is, just like John the Baptist, Jesus is saying that to the religious leaders, who, by the way, you may know, never repented. They didn't repent. The very idea that Jesus would tell them they needed to repent was offensive. The very message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, implied that they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And they got the message. Believe me, they got the message. The scribes and Pharisees, from the very moment Jesus begins to speak, they do not like what he has to say. Matthew goes on 
chapters 5, 6, and 7, which obviously we're not going to read all that this morning. That is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gets up and says, you have heard it said. Well, who do you think they heard that from? Scribes and Pharisees. That's where they heard it from. You have heard it said, but I say to you. And then he proceeds to show everything they said was wrong. They're wrong. And he talks, of course, about when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, don't stand on the street corner and sound a trumpet. Go quietly into your closet and shut the door, and your father, which sees in secret, will reward you openly. And when you give alms, don't even let anybody know what you're doing. So giving, praying, and sorry, fasting, when you fast, don't wear a long face like, oh, I'm fasting, I'm miserable. Wash your face, put on a big smile. These are the very things the Pharisees were doing. Jesus gets up, the first sermon Jesus gives is the Sermon on the Mount. And what does he do? He goes after the false teachers, openly. I don't, there's no anger. Jesus isn't mad at them. Jesus, it's not like he's, you know, screaming at them. He's just getting up and teaching. This is the truth. Let me give you the truth. You've all been believing lies. The keeping of the Old Testament law to the letter is not going to get anyone to heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. All of these things, the Pharisees were anything but any of those things. And it was all directed right at them because they were wrong. Matthew 9. Jesus goes into the house. The place is just packed. They bring the guy who is paralyzed. They dig a hole in the roof of the, in the, roof of the room, and they let him down with four cords right there in front of Jesus. Jesus heals the guy and tells him to take up his bed and walk and says, your sins are forgiven. They don't say anything. They don't even say anything. They just sit there and think it. And here's what it says in Matthew 9. Jesus, knowing their thoughts. Okay, you didn't even get to open your mouth. doesn't matter. Jesus, knowing your thoughts, decided to not say anything because it might offend somebody. Uh, Not so much. Jesus said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? What is it easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up your bread and walk? But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paraplegic, get up. Pick up your bed and go home. And he got up and went home. The crowds saw this. They were awestruck and glorified God that such authority was given to men. It might as just as well say, but the Pharisees were deeply offended. Well, they were deeply offended. Jesus doesn't do this quietly. Jesus doesn't say, okay, when the the meeting's finally over and everybody goes home, I'll, you know, take care of the guy, but I don't want to offend him. Oh, no. Jesus just does it right there in front. In fact, he says to them, your sins are forgiven. And when, they, and when they don't even say anything, he's like, I have the power to forgive sin. This is the truth. And I'm going to give you the truth whether you want to hear it or not. John chapter 5, which is a fairly lengthy passage. And again, we won't read the whole thing. But they challenge Jesus, who are you? Who do, you, who do you say you are? I mean, can we get a beat on exactly who you are? And Jesus says to them, well, my father works until now, and I work too. I'm, I'm on the Sabbath working. You can't work on the Sabbath. Well, I don't know. God works on the Sabbath, so I'm working on the Sabbath. He then says to him, verse 45, don't think that I'm going to accuse you before the father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. 
How do you think that went over? How do you think it went over when Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you guys are so wrong. You think Moses is on your side? Moses is not on your side. It's not going to be me standing up there accusing you. Moses is going to accuse you. In fact, if you didn't believe Moses, you would believe me. But you don't believe him, so you're not going to believe me. They are so hostile, they're trying to kill him. Is Jesus quiet when they're trying to kill him? No. He just speaks to them, gives them truth. Mark 3, he entered a synagogue and there was a man there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. That's why you're in the synagogue. The big Pharisaical teaching was you can't heal anybody on the Sabbath. Healing is obviously some kind of a job. It's some kind of work. You're apparently acting like a doctor or something. We're not really sure. We haven't had the healing thing going, but we're pretty sure it's work. So you shouldn't be doing it on the Sabbath. So how does Jesus respond to that? I mean, they're clear what they think Jesus ought to be doing. You, there are six days a week to heal people. Don't be doing it on the Sabbath. So how does, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? They're all watching him to see if he will heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So he said to the man with the withered hand, uh, see me after and in the back room here and we'll see what we can do. Oh no, that, oh no, that's not what he says. Right in the middle of the service, he says to the guy with the withered hand, uh, stand up and come down front, will you? I want everybody to see this. Everyone needs to see this. That's what Jesus did. And then he, then he looks around and he says, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? I mean, talk about confronting, speaking truth. I don't, I don't think Jesus is mad. I, I, don't, I don't think spittle's flying out of his mouth. I don't think he's shaking his fist. And he's just looking at them like, okay, so you guys tell me. You're, you're the experts on the law, so which is it? Are you supposed to do good on the Sabbath or bad? Are you supposed to save life or, or kill? And then he says to the guy, he does, after they say nothing, he does look around at them with anger. It's like, seriously, what's wrong with you guys? Have you no compassion on a man with a withered hand? That guy can't provide for his family. Really? So then he says to the guy, stretch out your hand. And of course, he stretches out his hand and it's fully restored. So did Jesus actually do any work on the Sabbath? He never even touched the guy. Oh, it's totally deliberate. It's totally deliberate. First of all, there's no work in the guy stretching out his hand. I mean, obviously, people can stretch out their hands on the Sabbath. Jesus never touched the guy, so it's like... Oh, it's completely deliberate. Why? Because Jesus has the truth. And they don't. Luke chapter 7. We went through this passage, but Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, to what shall I compare this generation? And what are they like? Well, I'll tell you what they're like. They're like children who sit in the marketplace and call to one another and they say, you know, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. Son of man himself, I've come eating and drinking and you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. You have to understand, right? 
They already hate the guy. They're already trying to figure out how to kill him. And he gets up and calls him a bunch of children. You guys, you guys act like a bunch of kids. You can't make up your mind. You, you sing a song for us to dance to, and you don't want to dance, and we sing a dirge for you to mourn to, and you don't want to mourn. Jesus is like, look, John the Baptist came. You didn't want to hear him. I came. You don't want to hear me. Luke chapter 7. Remember, the Pharisee invites Jesus to the house. We just saw this just a little bit ago. And there was, there was a woman there who was a woman of the evening. And she came in and started crying on Jesus' feet, washing them with her tears, wiping them with her hair. And the Pharisee is looking at him, thinking to himself, again, it says, he's just thinking it to himself, if this man were a true prophet, he would know what kind of woman was touching him. She's a sinner. And so, he doesn't say anything, but Jesus answers him. Jesus answers him anyway and says, okay, Simon, you all know the story, right? A guy owed, one guy owed a big debt and one guy just owed a little debt. Which one, if both debts are forgiven, we love them more? Well, the one with the bigger debt. Okay, well, there you go. I came in here, you didn't, you didn't give me any water for my feet, and she has, she has washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss, she's kissed my feet. You didn't anoint my head, she's anointing my feet. Why? Because you think you only need to be forgiven a little. She knows she needs to be forgiven a lot. Mark 7, the scribes and Pharisees are saying to him, look, why don't you guys walk after the traditions of the elders? You guys eat bread with impure hands. You didn't ceremonially wash your hands. Now, note, this is not hygiene. This is, there were ceremonial washings. There was an exact specific way to do it in the right kind of water. And Jesus looks at them and says, well, this, this is Jesus' reply. And, and I want you to stop and listen to the reply of Jesus. He says to them, rightly did Isaiah Prophesy of you guys, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Your lips claim to be near me, but your heart is far from me. And in vain do you claim to worship God. You have replaced the true teaching of God with the doctrines of men. You neglect the commands that God actually gave you and make up new commands. You set aside the law of God so that you may put in your own traditions. And then he talks about how you dedicate everything in your house to God. And then when your parents, your own parents are in need, you're like, sorry, I already dedicated it all to God. Can't take care of you. You set aside the very commands of God to honor your father and mother so that you could do traditions. And then he calls the crowd to him and says to them, listen, I want you to understand there's nothing outside of you which can defile you. It's what goes into you that defiles you. And then he proceeds to talk to them about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. The Pharisees get together and Matthew 22, how can we trap him? And so they, they go and they say, all right, should we pay taxes or not? I mean, we all know the account, right? They know that Jesus can't possibly answer this question without making enemies. He's either going to make the Romans really mad at him, or he's going to make all the people really mad at him, because everyone hates to pay the tax. 
of the Romans' charge. And of course, we all know how Jesus answers. Show me the coin. Here's a denarius. Denarii. Who's, who's pictures on there? Caesars? Well, you know, give to Caesars what is Caesars, and give to God what is God's. And of course, you all know you're all made in the image of God. So give yourself to God and give Caesar back his money. Who cares? Jesus is never just silent. They come after him and he comes back. Jesus speaks truth. The Sadducees come to him and say, all right, there were seven brothers and one of them, the oldest one married this woman and he died and then the sixth and the fifth and the, you know, until all seven of them had them and, you know, which, when they get to the resurrection, which one is, is she going to actually be married to? Again, Jesus answers them. It doesn't matter what they bring to them. Jesus answers them. In fact, at the end of that, Jesus says to them, all right, I have a question for you. He doesn't simply answer their questions. He now comes back at them. And he, he says to them, while well, the Pharisees are gathered together, what do you think about Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, well, he's the son of David. He said to them, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies beneath your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? They know exactly what the only answer could possibly be to that question, which is that obviously the Messiah as the son of David is actually God himself, which is why they refused and wouldn't answer the question. Because if they did, then Jesus could make it clear that he is in fact their Messiah. So Jesus puts them on the spot publicly once more. And this is in Matthew 22. So this is probably within the same time frame as the passage we're in in Luke, towards the end of his ministry. They're unable to answer him a word. And it says, no one dared from that day on to ask him another question. They basically have, having brought their best, you know, we, we came and we asked him these questions about everything we could think of that we couldn't answer. And so we brought them to Jesus and he just answered them and made us all look like idiots. And then he turned around and actually asked us questions that we couldn't answer. So we decided, okay, we're done. We're not, we're not asking questions anymore. So Jesus has now argued his opposition into complete silence. They are unable to answer his questions, and they're not going to ask him any more questions. So this is Matthew 22. So what does Jesus do in Matthew chapter 23? Does Jesus just decide to declare victory and say, well, okay, I have won all debates. I have literally argued them into silence. I've argued them to the place where they, they refuse to interact with me anymore. They won't, they won't talk to me anymore. So does Jesus just declare victory and maybe go back to you know, Mary and Martha and Lazarus place and just kind of say, well, all right, I guess we'll just, uh, <clears throat> you know, we'll just be meek and lonely, lowly and, uh, and say, well, all right, glad that all went so well. Is that what Jesus does? If you've read Matthew, you should know very well. What Jesus does is in Matthew chapter 23, he goes right back into the temple complex and proceeds to present some of the most aggressive, strongest words 
for the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees, calls them hypocrites, calls them false teachers, calls them all kinds of things that are absolutely true about them, tells them that you guys go out and make a disciple unto yourself and you make him twice the son of hell that you are. He calls them fools and blind. He says to them, you are blind leading the blind. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. This is how Jesus deals with false teachers. You clean the outside of the cup, but you don't clean the inside. Why? Because inside you're full of wickedness and evil. It just goes on and says it over and over and over. Inwardly, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is how Jesus deals with them. You are, you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets, and you are filling up to the full the guilt of your fathers because the greatest prophet ever is here. And just as they murdered the lesser prophets, you guys are going to murder the greatest prophets. You're serpents. You're a brood of vipers. How in the world do you think you're ever going to escape the sentence of hell? That's Matthew 23. You're going to be guilty of the blood of all the prophets from the beginning. Why? Because you have someone greater than all the prophets. Now, let's be clear, right? They're going to crucify Jesus for this. They are going to come after him. They are, in fact, going to be very unhappy that he tells them this. I don't think Jesus, um, I, I think Jesus is telling them so that they have some opportunity to repent. Jesus tells them this so that the people can hear the truth. He looks at the people as those who are lost like sheep without a shepherd. And these folks are leading them astray. When we go into our world and when we begin to interact, there are people out there who haven't made up their mind yet. Talk to them. There are people out there who are going to oppose you. Oppose them. There are people who are going to tell lies about you. Speak to it. Speak the truth. The reality is, we are all sinners to the core of who we are, every single one of us. And so we come to the world with humility. We come to the world graciously. We come to the world with kindness. But the kindest thing we can do is let people know that they're going to give an account to the creator of the universe for their lives. They may not believe that. They may want to silence us. They may hate us for saying it. Say it. Say it. You don't have to be angry about it. You don't have to be mad about it. You don't, you don't have to add some kind of emotional, you know. People are sinners. Okay, so are we. There's all kinds of sins in the world, and we're guilty of a whole pile of them. We are sinners to the core of who we are. God has given us the forgiveness offered through his son. We've taken that. We have been renewed and born again, but until we get to heaven, sin still characterizes who we are in the, in the innermost man. And so we approach the world with humility, but we approach them and we speak truth. 
Jesus confronted his society continuously, openly, and spelled out the truth. Right up until when he, when he was at his trial, yeah, like a lamb before his shearer was dumb and he opened out his mouth. But every place else he did, the entire Gospels are a record of Jesus interacting with the people of his society, telling the false teachers they were wrong and pointing out exactly how they were wrong and pointing out their hypocrisy and pointing out the things that they were saying that were wrong. We live in a day and age where it's a pretty target-rich environment, right? There's lots of folks with lots of ideas that are all too happy to get out there and give them. We should be in the midst of that speaking truth. We have the truth. Our world desperately needs it. We should not hesitate a moment to speak truth. Don't allow yourself to be cowed into silence. Jesus, they did everything they could to silence him. And until the moment came when God was like, okay, it's, it's time, then Jesus was silent. Until then, not once. Not once. I mean, Jesus actually read people's minds and answered them. Jesus went out of his way to call people. He would go from synagogue to synagogue on the Sabbath, find sick people, and heal them. Just because he knew they thought that was the wrong thing to do. And he presented to them truth. I assure you, the people he healed were very glad he did. The people we give the gospel to, people don't want you to give the gospel. Give it. People don't want you to talk about God the creator. Talk about it. We're in a battle. It is a war. We are the soldiers. Put on the armor of God. Get out the sword of the spirit. Hold up your shield of faith and get in the battle. Talk to people. Speak truth. Be kind, but speak truth. See what God will do. Unsheathe that sword of the spirit. Get verses, memorize them, know them. Figure out where they fit into life and speak them. You know, I know this uh, ancient Middle Eastern book. That would be Proverbs. And just throw them out there. Don't worry, the word of God will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. This is what Jesus did. We should be like Jesus, right? So be bold. Be kind. Speak truth. You have no idea what God will do with that. You just have no idea. You have no idea who's out there desperately wishing someone would speak the truth. May it be you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the amazing wisdom of it. So many lies out there. The devil has had so much time, generation after generation after generation, to get our world to become increasingly more hostile to us. You warned us that in the last days, perilous times would come. People would be lovers of themselves and lovers of money and lovers of pleasure more than lovers of you and the time would come when they would not endure sound doctrine. Surely we live in such a time. May we be true and faithful, and may we get in the fight. 
May we speak truth interjected into our conversations with people. Send us people who want to hear it. Give us wisdom to know how to deal with people who don't want to hear it. May we recognize a religious discussion when we hear one and be sure and include your word. Lord, we know that you continue to draw your church unto yourself. You continue to call people out of this world and use our lives to accomplish that. May we work with you and get your truth, your word, your view into our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.